The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Last few weeks, we've been looking at the Buddha's articulation of the path. And, uh, of course, in this setting, we have to talk about it. We use language, image. But the path isn't something that we you know, describe. It isn't the conceptual map. It's something that we intuit directly, experientially in our lives. And one metaphor that's used a lot in the Buddhist tradition is understanding the path as a kind of purification. And it's a real shift. Like one of the things the Buddha might emphasize is a sense of humility. Like we always think we know what our life is about or what's important or what the path is. And what we discover as we live our life, assuming that we're waking up, you know, and becoming more clear, more aware as we live our life, is we're realizing, oh, this is what it's about. We thought it was about that, but then we wake up a little bit more. And it's always a bit surprising, like, I thought I knew, and now I realize, oh, this is what's important. This is what's relevant. And we live according to that, understanding that more clear understanding only to then have the same thing happen again oh oh this is what it's about and it's not like we take a 90 degree turn it's more of a refinement and it's not like we were wrong back when we were teenagers from that point of view getting that person to like us was what it was about you know in a way like Am I worthy of being liked? Am I worthy of fitting in? Or whatever that sort of neurotic activity when we were teenagers was all about. And then we, the mind, the wisdom matures a bit and we realize I don't need to be dependent on what they think about me. You know, and it matures and it matures and it matures. So a lot of the path is clarifying what the path is until the mind starts to have a deeper insight or intuition. So that's what we talked about the last few weeks, the purification of understanding. So there, just to keep it simple, it's called an eightfold path. And in the Buddhist tradition, often they didn't even in the early years um, use statues. That was later when northern India was invaded by Alexander the Great. What was that, maybe two or 300 B.C.? Uh, whenever that was, and then there was this interaction between the Buddhist culture and you know the Greek culture, and they had a lot of statues. So then they started, well, we need a statue, so we'll make a statue of the Buddha. So if you look at some of the early Buddhist uh, Buddhist statues, they look a lot like Apollo because of this competition between the two cultures. But in the early years, the it was the symbology was a little bit more in line with the teaching teachings. So they'd have an empty chair. That was sort of provocative, religious, spiritual symbol, like a chair with nobody there. Or like on our sign, that beautifully carved sign that uh, one of our local artists and community members, Cecilia Schiller, did for us. She also did this altar for us. Um, 
you see the footprints carved in the sign outside? And that's sort of the graphic we use for our, our documents and artwork. So that was a common symbol, just two footprints. Like somebody's gone this way before, so we can go that way too. What this person did, we can do. And another image is the eight-spoked wheel. So symbolizing the path. Because in Buddhism, it has these eight parts, but we're going to talk about it in three parts because it's just easier to remember. The three parts include all the eight pieces. But the wheel is nice too for all kinds of reasons. The circle is a nice image. But in Buddhism, it's used of something getting set in motion like this set of teachings that illuminates our own experience instead of like trying to believe in the Eightfold Path or this way of practicing or whatever, however you call it. It's more we get the information about the path and it helps to illuminate, oh, that's what that information is pointing to. This way that this process that's already apparent in my own experience that conceptual map kind of helps the mind realize it or understand it, awaken to it. So we, in three parts, to keep it simple, the path, this circle that gets set in motion, it involves a series of purifications. So we'll talk about it as three purifications. We're purifying understanding. So the understanding is obscured by habit energy, we're purifying our actions in the world. Our actions, how I relate to you, how I see you, how we interact, that is clouded by my habit energy, like being afraid in all kinds of ways, being needy in all kinds of ways. And we purify our mind, like the the kinds of thoughts. You could think of it as the ecology of the mind. So we're purifying. The path is understanding that we need to purify the mind. Now, the it's not that the mind itself is good or bad, but the habits that cloud the mind is uh, not helpful. And so there's a subtle, it's a little subtle, but I think it's worth mentioning. You know, the we talk about the mind or the heart. You could use the word heart just as well. We talk about it in two two ways. There's the activity of the mind or heart, and it's this activity which can be obscuring or clouding. And then there's the mind or the heart itself. And we say the mind in its essence is neither good nor bad, neither skillful nor not skillful, It's empty of self. It's not about me or you. So, but we keep missing the nature of the mind, the empty of self nature of the mind, because the habit of our mind is to be transfixed, to get obsessed with, caught by the activity. Activity is thought, is an activity of mind, right? Thoughts come and go. That's an activity. Emotions come and go. So what obscures the awakening process is the activity of the mind. So when we talk about purifying 
understanding, action, and mind. We're just talking about on these different, you could say, vibratory levels or different frequencies, we're purifying the mind, the activity of the mind, so that the mind then sees things as they are, clearly. And we talk about seeing it clearly as seeing that this experience is empty of a center, a self-center. There is this, but there's no self-center to find in this. So it's not a nihilistic sense like there's nothing here. Well, clearly that doesn't you know, fit our experience. It seems like something's here. But because of the obscurations, because of the activity of habit energy, it appears as if this, like this experience, has a center to it, a me. Isn't that your experience? So we're purifying the mind of that understanding. And then the Buddha, in talking about right understanding, this is what we've covered the last couple of weeks, he talks about this natural, gradual development of understanding which arises as the mind, as wisdom, you could say, this wisdom, this force of wisdom in the mind, purifies understanding. So wisdom is this natural force, like everything else has to be. It's also a natural force. Wisdom is not personal. It arises, it's this part of the mind or this process in the mind that is interested in seeing things in and of themselves, not in terms of my cultural beliefs, or the way my mind's been programmed, but just learning to see things in a non-judgmental, simple, clear, essential way. Sound is just sound, sight is just sight, thought is just thought, emotion just emotion, things in and of themselves. So when the mind observes more and more in that way, the first dawning is this idea that it's, Whatever this is, it's unfolding lawfully. Cause and effect. It's complicated. It's not a simple, this causes this to happen, and then this causes that to happen. Because there are many forces, interdependent forces at play, but as they interact, this interdependent happening, they set in motion whatever's going to happen next. So this moment is the natural unfolding of everything that showed up previously plus the mind that's understanding it. So that this is how this has come to be. If we want to know, like the Buddha says things like, you want to know what happened in the past? Well, if you really, really understand this, you understand the past. Because where else has this come from? Right? Right? There's nothing here right now that wasn't conditioned by the past. And you want to know the future? Understand this and how you're relating to it. Because that's what's setting in motion the future. The future will unfold from this and how the mind is understanding this. And really, this includes how the mind is understanding it. But I'm just pointing out that really important aspect of this present moment, how the mind is understanding it. So everything is right here. There really isn't, as you know, I think you know, there really isn't a past somewhere, right? It's literally nowhere, the past. It's gone. And the future does not exist as we 
you know, in our mind, it almost feels like it's out there, like we could lean into it. But there's just this very ripe, potent now, which is arising out of the past as the past slips away and being shaped by the mind that is knowing it. Right? So there's what's arising is being known by this mind with all its dispositions. So we start to see that lawfulness. And you see how that understanding that it's lawful begins to burn away what we call wrong view, like thinking it's random. I mean, a lot of times we just think that that's the way it is. Well, that was sort of fortuitous. But we don't realize, well, of course, when things are like the way they are, this is what's supposed to happen. It's not magical that it's like this. There were causes and conditions. You know, if we've had some success in life, it was the natural unfolding of whatever causes and conditions were set in motion. If we haven't had a lot of success, it is quite the, the natural unfolding of the causes and conditions. You know, maybe we grew up in the wrong side of town. Maybe we have the wrong color of skin. You know, or maybe we had a lot of emotional trauma that then gets acted out in all my relationships which makes it hard to have success. Or maybe we were born on the right side of the tracks with the right color, without a lot of emotional trauma, with a good set of genes, you know, healthy, whatever. But it isn't me, it's just the natural unfolding of how things are. So we want to see it that way. And then the question is, well, how do we relate to this? How do we open to this? Well, the first thing is we want to understand it's lawful because that opens the window to there are ways to be skillful and there are ways to be unskillful because how we relate is part of how this moment is and how what we're setting in motion. So without clearly, directly getting in little glimpses, many, many, like thousands of times that we're living in a lawful universe, we lack the motivation to pay attention and to discern how to relate in ways that set in motion something good and how to uproot the ways of relating that set in motion suffering for myself and others. How are we actually going to create, help set in motion happiness for ourselves and for the wider world if one, we don't understand the lawfulness, and then discern that lawfulness to see that given how I'm showing up in the moment, so this is the only input, like whatever the, the trajectory of my life and everybody else's life is, my only input is how I'm showing up moment to moment. So I have to understand the lawful unfolding and the skillfulness about the different ways that I might relate right now, understand interact, engage. And this, again, it uproots the wrong view of helplessness, like there's nothing I can do. It's out of my control. It's not my fault or my responsibility. So there are many ways that we check out and think, you know, feel helpless. 
But it doesn't take much reflection to get hopelessness is not a skillful attitude. It doesn't feel good and it doesn't lead to wholesome states, happiness. So this is this gradual um, purification of view. We, the mind begins to intuit just from paying attention in a more honest, direct, immediate way, what we call mindful awareness. It sees that not only is it lawful, but the way I participate can either be skillful or unskillful. And when I say skillful, it means I'm participating. My mind is understanding the experience and engaging the experience in a way that sets emotion happiness. And when I say unskillful, it means we're setting emotion unhappiness for ourselves and others. And then the more that, then we get really interested. Now we're motivated, right? I mean, human beings aren't afraid of work. We just don't want to work if we think that the results are random. Like, it doesn't really matter if I work hard, whether good things happen or not. Then that takes the incentive to engage life, to show up in a wholehearted way away. But if we think it matters, and if we think we sort of know how to show up, we really engage. You see people doing this. When they think wealth is the ticket, people work really hard to get money or getting some partner. You know, they're attracted to somebody and they think having this person in my life is the answer. People work really hard at all kinds of things that maybe ultimately aren't as important as we once thought. So this is doing it in the most subtle, direct way and really getting how we're literally creating our world through how we relate, how we show up, how we engage, and beginning to discern the difference between skillful and unskillful. And the more we do that in more and more subtle ways, something else begins to dawn on the mind. And this, you could say, is more the deeper end of wisdom. So we're purifying understanding or wisdom from thinking it's a random world, you know, it's just fate, to seeing it's lawful. From feeling helpless to seeing, no, 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 it really matters. I can be an acting agent in how things unfold. To seeing that the best way to deal with the lawfulness is to let it be what it is, a natural and personal process. So this is the maturing of wisdom and it doesn't contradict the second development of insight, which is they're skillful and unskillful. Because when you really get that they're skillful and unskillful and you want to do it right, you're willing to follow what's skillful to the nth degree, even if it means not taking skillful and unskillful personally. Does this make sense? Like if I really want to be skillful in my talk tonight, and, I, and I've given a lot of talks. So over the years, you know, you can many, many hours of my mind being somewhat aware of doing this while I'm doing it. And then I learn there's like a lot of data points there. And I start to see when I take it really personal, like wanting to be skillful and taking that wanting personally, then it begins to dawn on the mind that that doesn't help. Being identified with being the one who wants to do a good job doesn't help. Dropping the identification, seeing that there is a natural arising, a natural intention to want to do a good job, but it's impersonal. But still it's there. Just because the intention to want to do a good job is impersonal 
doesn't mean it's non-existent. So I can feel, I can know the mind sees that intention to want to do a good job, to be clear, you know, to speak in a logical way. Doesn't mean I have to get tight about it. Like, I really want you to get it. Do Are you getting it, right? So we learn this everywhere in life, that actually the way to let skillfulness really blossom is to not take it personal. So when you act in ways that are not so skillful, you really, you're there, present, but you're not personalizing the fact that you weren't so skillful. And when you're skillful and good things are being set in motion, you don't personalize that. And actually, dropping the identification, the attachment, the grasping, creates a cleaner feedback mechanism. So when you make mistakes, the mind sees what happened more clearly, and that gets integrated right into the system. So the next mind moment is the mind that knows what it did wrong. Because there's no neurotic, oh, I'm so bad, I can't believe I did that, right? It's just a clear scene. Oh yeah, when I did that, that happened. Just the logical unfolding is seen clearly and integrated back into the natural process of mind. So this is what we call the purification of view. It dawns in the mind that it's all lawful, there's skillful and unskillful, there's a way to engage, there's a way to set in motion wholesome states for myself and others. It's all uh, being attached, taking it personally doesn't help, abandoning. So there is a lawfulness, but it isn't personal. That's the maturing. That's what in Buddhism we mean by emptiness. It doesn't mean nothing exists. It means that this is empty of a center, a self at the center of it, which we do because the mind, our minds has been, have been conditioned to think that way. It's like our inheritance growing up in this culture and maybe even slightly genetic is for the mind to impute a sense of self, apart, feeling apart. So it's not really in the center. That's not even right. It's almost like I'm apart and the world is out there. Now, when you get that purification of view, wherever you are, it immediately starts to affect your action. So even if you're at just the beginning of your practice of paying attention in life, and you're just starting to dawn on your mind that we're living in a lawful universe. So now it's really interesting, because remember there are three parts of the purification. We purify the view, and we get more peace because our understanding is in line with the way it is. We purify our actions, and then we get more harmony in our actions, more kind of a fluent way of being with each other, and we purify the mind. So as soon as we begin to purify the view, it immediately starts to affect our actions in the world. So when we start seeing that it's a lawful universe, then, you know, when we have an interaction with another human being, like a boss or our child or our partner, a good friend, a parent, and things get really difficult, you know, we end up hating each other or fighting or something like that, then because it's dawned on the mind that I live in a lawful universe, what are we going to do? What just happened? Right? Because we expect now this makes sense. I don't understand how I got into this or how we together got into this contracted state, 
but I know it's lawful. So that means it's worthy of reflection. So let me think. Okay, what happened? What was I feeling? How did I show up? I wonder what she was feeling. I wonder where she was coming from. Oh, oh. You know, that's how I interpret And then I did that. And then she interpreted. We start putting the pieces together. It starts to dawn on mine. Oh, and see, you see how the purification of our action, reflecting on it, it, it starts to change everything. The view, actions, the mind. It's like if they're not really three things or three very connected things. So when we start reflecting on our actions and how we got ourselves into a sticky, difficult interaction with somebody, or you could, you know, you could be a beautiful interaction and be interested, like, how did that beautiful moment with that other person happen? It felt so healing to be with that person. How did that unfold? How did that come to be? And and then we how it deepens the purification. Then we begin to understand what's skillful and unskillful. So you can see that greed is unskillful by looking at it on the level of view or by looking at action and kind of connecting the dots. I was greedy and needy and demanding and then this got that triggered this in this person and then that triggered this in me and, and we were in hell together. And you say, okay, I bet that attitude that I came into this interaction with that might be unskillful. And so then the next time that attitude comes up, it will just naturally dawn in the mind, now last time this seemed really unskillful. Let's see what happens this time. Or maybe after doing it a couple hundred times with some clarity, we go, maybe I'll decide not to interact with this person because it seems that the only way I can relate to them is with greed, desire. So maybe I'll you know, pretend I have something else to do right now and I'll postpone this interaction until I can show up with some other kind of attitude. So the way that we talk about this in terms of the Eightfold Path, because now I'm going to complicate it a little bit. So this purification of view or understanding or wisdom, it starts with view, but then view, the more active part of view, we call intention or thought or resolve. So when we have wrong view the self-centered point of view, right? Then the kind of motive forces that start to flow out of my view, my mind, this view of me, oh poor me, or whatever, your sort of base feeling of self, that self apart from everything is, whether it's the oh poor me or great me or whatever it is, something's going to flow out of it. Greediness. When there's a self-center, there's greed. There's fear. There's anger at anything that seems threatening. Right? And when it's all too much, there's the desire to pretend it ain't the way it is, which we call delusion or denial. So those are the motive forces (coughs) that govern most of our days. What is flowing out of me from my self-centered views, self-centered sense, is my needs and my fears and my desire to check out, to not really show up in a clear way in life. Because it's just, I don't, I don't want to know. I just don't want to know. It's, just, it's already complicated enough, thank you. I just don't, don't want to be 
more sensitive because it's just going to confuse my fixed views of things. And I'm right now dependent on my fixed views, so I don't want more data points because they challenge my view. So that's why we choose ignorance and distraction and spending countless hours doing what we do that really doesn't help in the long run, but we pretend that it will. So we read that article or watch that show or, you know, do silly things with our time instead of collecting clear data points of the way it is. So with as right view develops, it's lawful. Right view is things are lawful. There's ways of relating that are skillful that lead to happiness. There are ways of relating that are not skillful that lead to contracted states and seems like it's very impersonal, very natural. No me who's good or bad. There are good actions and bad actions in in the sense of what they said emotion, but not a somebody who's good and bad, not some essential mark who's good or bad. Just patterns that have unskillful results and patterns or ways of being that have skillful results. And so a different different motive forces come from those views. Like instead of greediness, like if there's not a strong sense of self, then why would my life be all about acquisition, getting things? Right? So more of a sense of renunciation and generosity is naturally going to flow from a mind with right view. And instead of aversion, kindness and compassion. And right view itself is non-delusion. So that's, so that's what we end up with is non-delusion, clarity, kindness, compassion, and renunciation and generosity. Those are the motive forces. So it makes sense that, you know, our actions in the world coming from those motivations, those intentions, are going to be a lot more skillful. So uh, like next Sunday morning, once a quarter, we formally do the refuges and precepts. It's one of the few rituals we do at the center, one of the traditional Buddhist uh, rituals of chanting the refuges and precepts. We do it in the Pali language, which is the language spoken around the time of the Buddha. And it's what's been done in all the different cultures, regardless of the language. And so we chant, I'll say it in English, I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given to me. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, I undertake the training to refrain from false speech or speech that is hurtful, slanderous, like we're trying to use speech as a weapon to hurt, that's false, that's not true, that's idle, like not adding anything of value, just sort of spewing because we can. And the last one, the fifth one, is I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind. Even though in the Buddhist tradition, Getting drunk or getting high in itself isn't bad, but it increases the probability of being unskillful because the mind is less clear. So it's like the one thing that protects us from, the only thing really that can protect us from making unnecessary mistakes, 
acting out greed and aversion is like being aware, oh yeah, I'm being angry, I'm being greedy. And so if we're drunk or high or intoxicated on anything, we're just less likely to notice that we're being unskillful. So it's the fifth, the fifth precept. So we undertake these because over time we begin to we have begun to associate the difference between skillful motivations and unskillful motivations. Greed, anger, and delusion. It's easy to remember. Two lists. Greed, anger, and delusion, and the opposite. So in Buddhism we call them the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. I think these were the unwholesome and wholesome roots, right? So Unwholesome roots, greed, anger, and delusion, or you know, greediness, and instead of anger, hatred, or aversion, and then delusion. And then the three wholesome roots, non-delusion, which we call right view, and flowing out of right view is non-greed, which we say is renunciation and generosity, and non-aversion, which we say is um, kindness, loving kindness, and compassion. So this is what we take in terms of our actions, our speech, our li- even our livelihood. And so this is the next, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this part of practice. From right view, right intention, that's the wisdom piece, into right action, right speech, right livelihood. So what does right view look like when it gets operationalized into our actual relationships in the world. And then how does that inform the rest of the path? Because we're purifying our view, we're purifying our actions, and of course what we're doing in the world, our livelihood, that's what's going on in our mind all day long. And even when you go home at night, what goes on in our mind? It's like we're repeating, basically commenting on what we did all day the actions, right? So if we need to, we can't really purify one without purifying all three. When we purify the view, we get peace. When we purify our actions, we get harmony in our relationships. When we purify our mind, it gets quiet, calm, right? So this is the path to freedom. We're waking up, and understanding how to purify. Each time we wake up, we get a better sense how to purify these three things. View, action, thoughts. The thoughts in the mind. So I'll leave it here. I know in the last few weeks we haven't had that much time for questions and comments from people's practice. So now we have a little bit more than 15 minutes. And it would be nice to hear your questions and any experiences from your practice that you think fit. Yeah, Lewis, please start us off. Well, I've got a question. I've been thinking a lot about, uh, well, internalized depression, and also about uh, lessons that get laid on you, you know, from childhood on. And one of the questions that came up for me was, is, is there a connection between delusion and the whole idea of original sin. Well, you know, one of these things, 
Here's the thing about religious structures. Even the most arcane or, you know, sort of bizarre even, um, religious symbology or map, if somebody has authentic mystical experience but just happens to be born in a sort of culture with a particular religion, with their particular set of beliefs and struct, you know, religious conceptions. But they've had real experience of seeing things as they are. Those metaphors and images and concepts may not be very useful, but they'll make them work as well as possible. So I want to be careful because there probably have been people through the ages who have used the concept of original sin in somewhat of a meaningful, authentic, useful way for other people. And it's probably been more often misused, misunderstood. I'm not even sure where that idea came from, if it even is back in the, you know, related to statements from from Jesus. Does anybody know? Yeah, but see, actually, Genesis story, I think, actually works quite well. Because, so then, you know, like from the Genesis story, original sin is this idea that there are human beings living in a very natural state where they're not conceiving of themselves as being apart, right? Isn't that the state of Eden? And then uh, those women... (laughs) So patriarchy rises here... (laughs) But anyway, a person, one of the people, uh, gets curious about like owning the experience, making it mine, the knowledge, self-knowledge, I think is how it's translated sometimes, right? Eating from the tree of self-knowledge, owning the experience of freedom. But it ends up contaminating it, right? And it's the birth of self-consciousness, feeling, what did they, they start noticing their nakedness after that, right? So that original sin it's what we do all the time. But the thing is, it's not personal. It's sort of, this is what happens. It's like the idea of self well, with language, with sophisticated language, we can conceive of almost anything. The mind, the thinking mind, the language mind can construct stories. And some of those stories are so vivid, they're hard to forget. Like, the story of me. You know, we always, it's interesting now, there's so many movies over the last 30 years or so, how many movies have there been about robots, sort of really sophisticated robots, sort of coming alive as a self, you know, somebody with an agenda, (laughs) like, we'll do it better, (laughs) or something, you know, and they become uh, tyrannical. I mean, that's always generally how these apocalyptic movies go. But it's the same sort of mechanism where there's sort of a sophisticated language and then that language conceives of something that I can't forget, right? It's like intoxicating, me, me. So this is a little bit like our dilemma. The mind has conceived the thinking mind naturally. Language arose as sort of a natural process gradually. And then in that process, 
And there are even scientists, like I, he's dead now, but Julian Jaynes, who was a professor at Princeton, wrote a book, um, Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Maybe some of you, some of you are nodding, have read that book. But it was his attempt, I think probably an imperfect attempt, but a very provocative and interesting attempt to sort of map out the history in light of this, like when did self-consciousness, the genesis, actually happen to people? Where they started to conceive of themselves as a part instead of more of an ant-like mentality, you know, where we're just going, just, doing what we've been programmed to do. And if we're born as a servant, we just sort of act that out. And if we're born into an aristocratic family, we're just sort of acting out that conditioning and we don't think outside the box. But at some point, language beca- became sophisticated enough and it's not hasn't stopped, right? It's still continuing that, that growth. So original sin is that, like in the best sense, I think, Lewis, is the beginning of the intuition that something happened. And the important thing from the Buddhist point of view is it's happening now. It's like the original sin has to happen moment by moment. The sense of separation has to be reborn moment by moment or there's freedom. If we don't, if we don't get confused in this moment, then we're not confused. And confusion is an activity of the mind. It has to take the bait moment by moment. It doesn't matter if we took the bait this morning. We have to take it moment by moment. It has to feel personal now or it's not personal. It has to be, there has to be self-importance now or there's not self-importance. So we can drop it in any moment. That's the, that's the important piece, I think, of that concept of original sin. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. Other thoughts that come to mind? Experiences in your practice? Yeah. Uh, on Thursday, I was working out at a gym, and a friend of mine, or, or a guy I know, he tossed a playing card at me. It seems such a minor thing, but I felt like, kind of like, violated, or, or uh, and so immediately, I wanted to try to figure out why he did that. Um, and I just felt kind of stuck, I didn't know how to react. And so then that evening, the next day, I kind of let it go, but I still, like my brain's in terms of like emotions, like I, I don't feel very happy about it, but I know my brain is, that was like the first time in a long time I feel like I didn't want to react, like, you know, just trying to, like I didn't feel centered, I didn't, usually I don't even have to kind of know how I'm going to respond, but I just can, can act out of passion. And so my brain has held on to it for, uh, for a while, just trying to see if I could still figure it out in that if it happens again, then I'll know how to react. And so I've been just trying to, like, I guess, just be fearless that if I keep practicing in something, so any situation, whatever comes up, that I perhaps will know how better to react. Yeah. But you know, there's a shadow when, it's always this way, as insight begins to develop in our life and the mind is just seen more clearly and we're beginning to understand the difference between being skillful and not being skillful, being unskillful, then the ego will reemerge as the one who wants to be skillful and the one who's afraid of being unskillful. And then we end up uh, creating problems for ourselves. 
Because in that situation, the practice isn't to want to be skillful. The practice is to feel what it's like to be confused or to feel what it's like to be angry or whatever that whatever arose when that card was flicked at you. That feeling is the truth. So practice is to connect with that, regardless of whether it's skillful or not. It's totally appropriate to see that it's unskillful, but it's not appropriate to demand it be other than what it is. So when we're not skillful, we have to be willing to really own that experience. That's not easy. It's really not easy. And it becomes harder when we know the possibility of being skillful. So the more that you're clearly aware of how you might have been able to be skillful, and then to see that because of causes and conditions that are not personal, you weren't skillful. You didn't have the witty reply or you didn't have the space in your mind to just let it be what it was, you know. No, you got hooked a little bit. But maybe that's how okay. Like, so how can I use the fact that that got under my skin to learn what can be learned? And that means we have to be willing to be vulnerable to the yucky feeling of being upset doesn't mean you should act out the being upset, but you want to be internally very honest and non-judging about that feeling. You really want to touch the vulnerability that arose in that moment. And you don't want to be dismissive like, it shouldn't be this way. Because sometimes little things can open big doors. And it's not for us to say, no, 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 that was a little thing. Because the appropriate response is the response that arises for us. And we don't want to second guess what happens. But it's hard. And this is a natural shadow when we, really, we have real insight about skill and, and lack of skill. And then we want to make that a personal project of being skillful and not being unskillful. But that's also a natural arising. I can't make myself be skillful. Boy, have I tried. And, but I have, I'll tell you what I've really learned, and I think this is the fruit I've been practicing now, you know, every day for 33 years. And uh, I think the real fruit of my practice is I'm less afraid about being unskillful. I'm really, I see it, and I, it doesn't reverberate. I don't beat myself up. I don't construct a sense of a somebody who's bad. And it really dissipates the, um, the ripples of unskillful actions. And I think I mentioned this last week about the salt in the pint, remember? And it's like that sense of the unskillful actions are arising in a bigger and bigger lake. So the salt is having a less of an effect. If I put a cup of salt, if you weren't here last week, in a pint of water, it makes it really salty. If you put a cup of salt in Lake Superior it doesn't really have an effect. And is it Brian? Yeah, go ahead. Thanks for your question. I recently spoke with my partner for eight years, really recently. And, uh, yeah, so, um, I'm just trying to be still about the pain and depression of that. And uh, I guess my, my question is, I found myself being in some really amazing uh, mindful places where I feel meditative and alive and like I can feel anything that's coming to me. 
then there, the fine line for me is uh, sometimes that leads into a sense of repression. Repression, yeah. So I guess that's kind of the question is, is what you do in that moment you find that you're no longer meditative about what's happening to you, but you're actually repressing some of these things that are happening to you. So that sounds like I'm yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point because this we can use, and it's actually appropriate as long as it's not misused. But we use samadhi is the word we use for that calm, that steadiness. We can use samadhi to suppress, to repress, but mostly suppress what's hard to bear. But sometimes we need to do that. And it's interesting, you know, that after a breakup, a recent breakup, if you didn't hear, um, that you're finding a lot of natural mindfulness and steadiness, samadhi in your practice. And sometimes these shocking and painful things, um, they, they can shock the system out of superficiality. And one of the main um, obstacles to deeper states of concentration is our mind is really superficial and easily distracted. And when, you know, something like a huge change has happened, a life flipped upside down, uh, it changes. And the mind is just, it's like it's in a different world. And so it's just naturally more alert. And you know there's a lot of rawness, a lot of pain, right? And so the mind is like being really careful not to fall into that hole, right? So it's tracking its experience. So you see how these create the, all the right ingredients for being really concentrated, which is great. And that's a nice feeling, being concentrated. It's a nice feeling, like you said, peaceful, calm. And you just need to remind yourself that uh, it's okay to feel good. It's not bad. To feel good, and but to re, to realize that that's not the it's not the whole truth. It's just that when the mind is present with what is neutral or pleasant, it feels like this. Now, if I became present, sensitive to uh, the feelings of fear about the future, or the feelings of regret or whatever you might feel that might be heavy, then that will get as big as the universe too. Because that's what concentration does. When my mind is steady and clear, and if I look at sensations of breath, then that natural process of breathing in and out becomes the whole universe. Just the flow of the whole universe. And if I open to the sound of a cardinal, that becomes the whole universe. And I feel loving kindness the love becomes the whole universe. And if I feel calm, the calm becomes the universe. If I feel despair, the despair becomes the whole universe. So it's like a magnifying glass. And so when you're looking at something more ordinary or neutral or beautiful, it's going to be a very strong experience of beauty. But if you look at something that's painful, but that doesn't mean you'll lose or you have to lose your balance, right? It just means that it really is like when you see this, then you're going to let it touch your heart. 
the pain, the regret, the whatever you feel. And when you see beauty, you let it touch your heart. And take advantage of this time because these powerful transitions actually is how we want to live all the time. Mostly we're stuck in routines and it's when there's a big change that we come alive. That's why some people like to travel. They go to a new place, especially people who don't have it all planned out, and it's like their mind is just vividly present. Everything's new, everything's unknown, there are hassles. You can create hell by trying to control the experience, so you don't. And you, you know, the mind can be in an altered state. And a little bit like after a serious breakup like this, you're in an altered state. And so use that altered state to learn because the mind is more clear. And know that when it's beautiful, it's just beautiful. Don't hold to it because you know, and you could just remind yourself, it won't always be this way, but it is this way now. And the same thing when it's really dark, really heavy, really uncertain, it won't always be this way, but it is this way now. Can this be okay? Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. So let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Having the sense that everything we need to do our practice is right here in the experience of the moment. We don't need special equipment or even special teachers or special spiritual friends or even a center. Really moving in the direction of real independence. It doesn't mean it doesn't help to have teachings and teachers and friends and a place like Common Ground. But we under, want to understand that uh, everything we need is here in the mind and heart. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.